0: When it opened on the 25th of November, 1882, at the Savoy Theatre, *Iolanthe* was the first new theatre production in the world to be illuminated entirely by electric light. The opera itself was a huge success and ran for 398 performances. And it was the fourth consecutive hit for Gilbert, Sullivan and, of course, their producer, Richard Doyley-Cart, following HMS Pinafore, The Pirates of Penzance... Iolanthe was also marks a watershed in the very difficult relationship between Gilbert and Sullivan as collaborators. A little over a year after the Prayer and the Perry, to give Iolanthe its alternative title, was first performed at Savoy Theatre, Sir Arthur had decided that the music he was writing for Gilbert's librettos was beneath his dignity as a serious composer. So with Iolanthe safely launched... Sullivan intended to resign from the partnership and live off his royalties. Alas, just before the curtain was about to rise on Iolanthi, Sullivan had a a letter thrust in his hand from his stockbroker, Edward Hall, announcing that not only had Hall lost all of his own money, but he'd lost £7,000 of Sullivan's money too. These were the very investments that allowed the composer to support an astonishingly opulent lifestyle, to keep his brother's considerable growing family, and above all, to keep a mistress. However, Sullivan's financial fortunes and the partnership were rescued when in 1883 the composer signed a new five-year contract with Gilbert and their business partner Richard Doyley Cart. Highlanthe is perhaps the sharpest of the social satires that these two men had written to date. Gilbert had teased, of course, cherished Victorian beliefs in his earlier works, and indeed mocked the 19th century's idea of masculinity. In works where it's invariably women who see what needs to be done, while their menfolk either strut the stage in gold-braided splendour or are emotionally tied to the apron strings. But in a theme that still resonates today, Ailanthi suggests that it's ridiculous that you should play a part in government simply as the result of an accident of birth, and worse, that the House of Lords is stuffed with hereditary half-wits and nincompoops. Although, as always, Gilbert and Sullivan sugared their pills with wonderful tunes and witty lyrics. Iolanthe is perhaps one of Gilbert's most elaborate, topsy-turvy worlds. The fairy Iolanthe, you'll remember, fell in love with a mortal and was banished as a consequence to a swamp by the Fairy Queen, for fairies don't dally with mere mortals. In time, Iolanthe had a son, Strephon, a poor but happy shepherd who is, of course, half-fairy and half-man. Happily, it's the bottom half that is man. (laughs) Strephon has fallen for Phyllis, who is a ward of the Lord Chancellor. And Phyllis is also loved by every member of the upper chamber, particularly by a pair of boneheaded peers, the earls Mount Arret and Tolola. When the Lord Chancellor forbids a marriage between Phyllis and Strephon, the fairy queen and her band are ready to help Ailanthi and her son. Well, we've a trio of guests to help us unravel the peers and the peries in this afternoon's performance of Iolanthe. We've our very own Lord Chancellor, the baritone Adrian Clarke, who's covering the production of the role of the Lord Chancellor in this new production, and he'll be performing music from the opera with Andy Smith, who's a member of the English National Opera music staff. We've Paul Jones, who's responsible for all those things both strange and everyday that you need for any self-respecting opera production. Paul is the Props Workshop Manager here at English National Opera. And our first guest is the scholar Dr Aoife Monks, who teaches drama, theatre and performance studies at Queen Mary University in London, where she has a particular interest in 19th century theatre. Will you please welcome Dr Aoife Monks. Aoife, a very basic question to start. Um, Why were the Victorians so interested in fairies?
1: Well, they loved them, didn't they? We think of the the 19th century as sprinkled liberally with little women in lovely gauzy dresses. And I think this is really a response to the industrial world that the Victorians found themselves in, a world of train timetables, of factories, of woollen mills, of steam liners. And there is a very profound sense in that moment that something has been lost, that there is a kind of pre-modern innocent time among the English when they believed in fairies uh, and when they lived without machines. And so the, the Victorians begin to long for that moment. They begin to long for a lost past, a lost English past, which they want to reclaim somehow. This may feel a little familiar at the moment. Uh, and so fairies become a very uh, easy way to reclaim that past because they're decorative. Uh, they look rather lovely. And they also bring the Victorians back to a moment of their ancestors who genuinely did believe in fairies. So we think of the Shakespearean moment, for example, where fairies did exist. Yeah. The Victorians bring them back to life in their art, in their theatre, in their technologies, in their photography. Uh, and so it allows them recoup a certain kind of lost moment.
0: Is it also to do with That loss of faith at the end of the 19th century um, really, I suppose, predicated in part upon Charles Darwin uh, and the idea of the origin of the species, the challenge Mm. to holy scriptural text as history.
1: I think it might go even further back to the French Revolution, actually, where we see the birth of the modern secular nation, the first sort of notion of a state that can be created around new traditions that aren't centred on God. Mm. And so what we see through the 19th century across the Western world, is a set of new traditions being invented. This is the famous uh, phrase, the invention of tradition, uh, in which a whole set of Christian structures and monarchical structures are replaced by folklore, myths, fairies. So instead of king and church, we get fairy and football, for example. So we have sport (laughs) as the new tradition in which nationalism can be played out, but also an idea of a sort of pre-Christian past, which gets played out in the arts.
0: The production we're going to see tonight is gloriously theatrical in a very Victorian way. When Gilbert produced the first production of *My life, what was he parodying in terms of the theatre styles of his own age?
1: Uh, well most directly I think the fairy extravaganzas <coughs> that populated the 19th century stage through that century and they emerged from pantomime. So pantomime comes about at the end of the ninth, at the end of the 18th century due to censorship. Uh, because only patented theatres were allowed to put on proper drama. So you could only go to royal patent theatres to see Shakespeare, for example. And so we get a whole set of theatre forms that try and escape that censorship. Pantomime does it by being mute. So originally pantomime wasn't spoken. It was a purely mind and and physical performance. Melodrama is another example. Vaudeville is another example. And through pantomime, we get these sort of folkloric figures who were played out through movement. This evolves into the fairy extravaganza, which involves numerous women in diaphanous dresses, which were importantly short, showing off the legs, Uh, And of course, ironically, really cutting edge new technology. So the irony is that we have this desire for pre-modern innocence, but it gets played out on the stage using all the new lighting techniques uh, limelight, gaslight, eventually of course electricity. And we get pre-modern innocence played out with women in short dresses. And we have to remember how exciting legs were in the 19th century.
0: Well there are those wonderful accounts of gentlemen hanging around by bus stops, <laughs> waiting for the women to get onto the bus, hoping for a glimpse of ankle.
1: Absolutely. and yeah.
0: <laughs> so, 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 so there is a, a strong element of male sexual desire in the appeal of these entertainments.
1: Hugely, and of course the fairies were generally played by Ballet dancers, who at that time were strongly associated with prostitution, and so there's a an on-stage, off-stage relationship of male desire, where notoriously men would go backstage to uh, pay the women again. Let us say for their services. So there's a, a very strong sense in which the there's a kind of paradox in which the spectacle of feminine innocence is a means through which sexual desire can be played out almost undercover.
0: And um, by the time Gilbert and Sullivan write this piece, of course, the idea of women, as it were, being second-class citizens, um, deprived of the vote, Um, excluded from the ownership of their own property that they bring to it. All of these things are beginning to be discussed. Do you think this also (laughs) plays its part into this
1: opera? I think it really does, actually. I think what we're seeing is an opera that's both parodying past theatrical modes, like the fairy extravaganza, and at the same time is doing something actually acutely political in its moment by tackling the infamous woman question, which, of course, Freud claimed could never be answered. Uh, And at this moment, we have... Uh, petitioning for divorce rights for women. Uh, we've just had the success of women being finally allowed pro- own property in their own right. And of course, the emerging debate around suffrage. So this question of democratizing the House of Lords, should the Lords be simply there by birth or should they be elected, is sort of connected really to the woman question how does the democracy work? Who gets rights to participate in that democracy? And so the relationship to the suffrage and suffragette movement, the sort of nascent suffragette movement, I think is really playing out here. And we see it most of all, I think, in the parodying of what the Victorians saw as the two spheres, the woman's sphere of domestic bliss, which of course is an innocent space outside the public, and then the masculine sphere of reason and work and politics. And so we get a version of that in the fairies and the lords this is this sort of peculiar two spheres opera
0: there's a puzzle here isn't there where does the fairy queen fit into it is she just a mirror image of the lord chancellor from as it were the feminine perspective is she as some have suggested a a parodic version of queen victoria and where does she fit into the this kind of political dynamic
1: well i think what's fascinating is that the other perhaps tradition that's being reversed and played with here is the pantomime dame and in fact in the 19th century cross-dressing was the norm not the aberration. So to cast a woman in the role of the fairy queen was actually the transgressive act. It would have been much more familiarly played by a man, playing a sort of post-menopausal, dominant, sexualized woman, uh, who's seen as a bit troubling and also funny. Uh, And here we have an insistence, in fact, that women will play these roles, which starts to complicate that, that image. So I think on the one hand, we do have these sort of polar opposites, and perhaps a sense that simply flipping the system, where we put women in charge instead of men, wouldn't really work terribly well either. That there isn't a utopian sense that this would be the solution. But there's also a way in which the fairy queen opera is a much more sympathetic version of a woman in control or a woman in power than the dame does. Mm. And it is notable that we have a very statuesque, contralto uh, woman who somewhat resembles Queen Victoria, mm. I think.
0: But it's interesting that Gilbert and Sullivan uh, go as far as they can in masculinizing by the choice of the contralto voice, um, and indeed by the behaviour of these women. Mm. I mean, and I and I often find myself puzzled as to what they really want us to do. Do they want to believe with the fairy queen that there are a set of values above all flexibility, the ability to adapt and change to circumstance that women have that men don't? Or in the end, you know, are they parodying women who, as it were, have escaped from the upstairs of their houses and are dangerously on the streets about to cause trouble?
1: I think that's probably an unresolvable question because I think, as often is the case with artists, they may be doing something quite interesting politically, and I think they really are in this opera, while at the same time retaining all kinds of assumptions about mm. the very notion that a woman in charge would be funny or a woman in charge would be naturally masculine. And so how much is conscious and intentional and how much is simply a, a kind of re, uh, a reenactment of a, the set of values and assumptions of the day, it's hard to say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I suppose that's the nature of parody, isn't it? It's always <laughs> slightly ambiguous.
0: Indeed. And, uh, which brings me to uh, really modification of Freud's question about what do women want to to Strephon. What do we think that Strephon in this story was, in which he sits half fairy, the upper half, and half man, the bottom?
1: Well, I mean that is a fantastic notion, isn't it? That he's a man from the waist down, and that that's one of the great jokes of the opera. He's a hybrid figure, and I suppose. Again, through the 19th century, there's all sorts of uh, questions about what's the best way to rule? And this is a colonial question too. So if you turned over rule to the natives, as it were, what would happen? Mm. But then, of course, what we see emerging is these sort of hybrid identities through the 19th century. Mm. So colonial identities that are neither English nor native, as it were. And I think you see a certain sense of how would Streffen work? Is he another possible solution? And of course Mm. he isn't. Mm.
0: What do you think uh, is the legacy Here we are um, facing um, difficult questions about Brexit, um, uh, uh, still with the House of Lords, which may not be hereditary, but is entirely appointed and unelected. I mean, what do you think the legacy of this extraordinary piece is?
1: Well, I'm not sure I could answer that, but I will give you one of my favourite anecdotes about politics and the law, which i very strongly influenced, which suggests that the tension between men and women in government still plays out in peculiar forms of costume, which is that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the Supreme Court as the first female Supreme Court judge, she insisted that the robes were invented for men. So Supreme Court robes were clearly made for men with shirt fronts. So the black robes sort of show a shirt front. She said, well, women don't wear shirt fronts. So she insisted on adding a a lovely white lace collar. She's famous for wearing this. (laughs) And William Rehnquist, another Supreme Court judge, got jealous and said, why should the women have all the fun? And he then went to see a production of Iolansi and became very excited by the gold stripes on the Lord Chancellor's robes. So he insisted on adding some to his. And in fact his official portrait has him painted with the gold stripes on his robes. So we can see even now a sort of competition between what men and women get to wear and how they rule in both law and politics.
0: Wonderful. Gilbert couldn't have invented that. Absolutely not. What a legacy. (laughs) Ethan, thank you very much Indeed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by the baritone Adrian Clark, who's covering the role of the Lord Chancellor in this production, and by Andy Smith, a member of the music staff here at the English National Opera. Adrian, um, you are about to discover that in this cruel world of the pre-performance talk, yes. you have to talk before you're allowed to even sing for nice. your supper. Um, let's start by thinking about who you think the Lord Chancellor in this, this opera is. What kind of character is he?
3: Well, it's, it's very interesting um, in that the modern-day uh, Lord Chancellor uh, is, is uh, it's a slightly um, a diluted role. Than it was in Gilbert and Sullivan's day. He was the Lord High Chancellor then, and he was in charge of uh, that the House of Lords, the head of the judiciary, and the head of the Chancery um, mm-hmm. courts. And it's a role. It's, a, it's called one of the very uh, high offices of state, mm-hmm. and it has a very long history. In fact, the the early, well, one of the earliest, most famous Lord High Chancellor was Thomas More, mm-hmm. in uh, in Henry VIII's time. We you know what happened to him. Now, after the, um, I think there was um, a constitutional reform bill in 2005. Uh, then a lot of those powers were taken away from him. But now he still has a role, uh, which is the efficient running of the courts and to make sure that they stay independent. Mm-hmm. But uh, in 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 Gilbert's day. Uh, it still had that. Uh, he was second only to the Queen. Only the monarch mm. outranked the Lord High Chancellor. Mm.
0: Does he have,
3: as a character, any redeeming features in the story that Guilden? <laughs> well, I think I would contend that, he's that that that's, uh, that begs the question. <laughs> I don't think he's a baddie at all. <laughs> of, course, of course, when you ever when you are playing a role, you always have to be convinced by that role that you're playing. Otherwise, uh, you can't uh, you can't do it. You, you have to inhabit uh, the part itself. Now, I would say, yes, indeed. I mean, he's been in love uh, with Iolanthe. I think that was a true love that he had 25 years ago. He thought that she had died and that he hadn't had any thought to replacing her in his life. And is only persuaded by the, I mean, he has feelings for uh, for Phyllis, uh, and of course it's only reflecting his son's uh, attraction. Uh, and it's not until uh, he is persuaded by the dim-witted lords uh, that he really ought to try and marry again that he chooses to. But there's a lovely one of the most touching scenes is uh, towards the end of the opera when Ilanthe comes on and begs, uh, uh, for, for the life of her son. Mm. And uh, and then when he finds out so that scales are removed from his eyes and he recognises mm. her as his long-lost love and he's completely floored by that. And, uh, I think you've got a very tender heart. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Did, is it a work that you knew before you started working on this production? I knew it... Uh, I, I knew it... Partially, and I knew the song, which is quite a famous song, mm. uh, but is true; it would be true to say that I've learnt more about the whole piece as uh, during this production. And
0: what have you come to admire
3: about it? Well, I think uh, what you talked about, the political um, acerbity of, of, of the text, Gilbert's text, and this poking fun of the, of the Victorian mores uh, of the time. Mm. Um, and... Uh, as a, and there is some great music. I mean, in the end, the Act One finale, for example, stands uh, as a very great piece. I mean, it's not all wonderful music, not all opera. You know, the, we one can always find holes in bits of opera that are not quite so great as other bits, but here there's a lot of very fine uh, numbers and songs and, as I say, this, the Act One finale especially, mm. I think is a, is, a, is a testament to Sullivan's writing.
0: And, and, and what did Gilbert... Uh, and above all Sullivan, want from their singers? What
3: qualities do they ask for? I think it is it is a slightly different uh, style of singing from the grand operas of the time. If you think of Verdi and Puccini, uh, Wagner, the this uh, all-encompassing physical uh, performance is not as important. I mean, despite Sullivan's... Um, <laughs> uh caveats the, the the king really is the script uh, Gilbert was so mm. good yeah. uh, at, at what he was doing that's what people wanted to come and listen to. Mm-hmm.
0: And what's the challenge of the patter songs? These songs that ratatatat like mach- machine guns. I mean, I-, I often think you know I'd have to go lie down in the darkened room well. after two lines. <laughs> well,
3: let's see how we get on this morning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> though I have to say, in this production, I think wisely uh, that they're not. It's not too rapid gunfire because mm. I think it's very important that we do hear Gilbert's text. Yeah. It's yeah. very interesting the patter songs. They go back. A long way now. The history um, I discovered that uh, the word "pater" actually comes from uh, ecclesiastical times when the monks were singing the "Pater Noster" and they wanted to get to it faster and faster so they can get off and have the tea. <laughs> so the end of the service, a pater, and that became that's where the Fantastic. word comes from. Paternoster. And of course, we always think that uh, Gilbert and Sullivan is the, is the high point of the Pater Song. But of course, other composers uh, in the 19th uh, and 18th century used them a lot. Mozart, you, you think, and Rossini, Lago Factotum has a lot of Pater Song. Uh, Mozart, um, when Figaro comes and uh, sings um La la you have these very, and especially Donizetti. So it's not just English, but I think it reached its apogee. If that's the right word, in uh, what are you and Andy now going to
0: perform for us from the opera?
3: Uh, Well, I am going to do the nightmare song of the Lord Chancellor, which uh, I don't know whether it has got more words than any other aria, but it seems to have an
4: awful (laughs) lot. (laughs) Good luck. Thank you. quieted, robs me of my rest. Love, hopeless love, my ardent soul encumbers. Love, nightmare-like, lies heavy on my chest and weaves itself into my midnight slumber. You're lying awake with a dismal headache and repose. It's tabooed by anxiety. I conceive you may use any language you choose to indulge in without impropriety. For your brain is on fire, your bedclothes conspire of usual slumber to plunder you. First, your counterpane goes and uncovers your toes, and your sheath slips demurely from under you. When the blanketing tickles, you feel like mixed pickles, so terribly sharp is the pricking. And you're hot and you toss and you tumble and tussle with nothing twixt to to you and the ticking. Well, the bedclothes all creep to the ground in a heap, and you pick them all up in a tangle. Next, your pillow resigns, and belighted declines to remain it is usual angle, while you get some repose in the form of a with without eyeballs and head ever aching, but your slumbering teams are such horrible dreams that you'd very much better be waking, for you dream you are crossing the channel and tossing about in a steamer from a which is something between a large baking machine and a very small, second-class carriage, you're giving a treat, penny ice and cold meat, for a party of friends and relations, they're a ravenous horn, they all came aboard, flown 12 house heads I think he's only eleven you are driving that man with a steep wheeler and he's alive a ship's powerful wheeler and you're playing round games and he calls you bad names and you tell him that ties pay the dealer Well, this took out ten years around you end he'd have five cold as an icicle In no your shirt and no your socks for black like silk and good boots but he's Salisbury playing on a bicycle and he and the crew are on bicycles too if they've somehow rather invested in he's telling the tarth and particulars of a company he's interested in it. you are <laughs> a You're regular wreck with a cricket in your neck and a used to over your head. Sniffle on your knees and pinch your toes. You did. You It's daylight at last, and the night has be long Ditto, ditto, my song And thank goodness, they're both of them over Ahay! <laughs> hey.
0: Agent and Andy, too. Thank you both very much. You, you realize what a genius, in fact,
3: Gilbert is with, with words. Now Ross, and, and Bering, uh, or those local which we, yeah, you know, were yeah. in the news only the other year. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Um, our last guest, ladies
0: and gentlemen, this afternoon is Paul Jones, who is the Props Workshop Manager here at English National Opera. Will you please welcome Paul Jones? I'm bound to ask you, first of all, if you could just tell me, what does the Props Workshop Manager do? What's your kind of big responsibility?
2: Um, I think props are split into two sections. There's buys and makes, really. If you can't buy it, then we have to make it. Um, And uh, that throws up lots of interesting challenges and stuff. So, uh, This show in particular has been, without doubt, my best show we've ever done. Uh, which I can't go into because it'll spoil it, but... <laughs> it, yeah. What a tease you are.
0: <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll, we may coax something out of you. Um, how are prop makers trained? I mean, do they go and do a degree uh, at a, at a theatre school? I mean, do they lean um, um, uh, next to elderly men who've been making props since <laughs> Noah? I mean,
2: what's, what's the, how do they learn? Um... Prop making is such a wide field. It's uh, It goes from sewing to carpentry to welding, uh, and now there's 3D printing, uh, and no one expects everyone to know everything. So mm. there, there are courses that you can do in props, but I tend to pick people with more specialist mm. knowledge, so I have a few carpentry people and a few stuff. I mean, I don't know how to do everything. I've only ever met two people that... That knew how to do almost everything, and one of them couldn't sew, and the other one couldn't weld. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh,
0: um. I, I can't imagine why you would need
2: those two skills simultaneously.
0: <laughs> where do
2: you where do you look for the prop people who work with you? Um, we get there are courses that do special effects makeup mm-hmm. or or scenic construction. There are prop making courses, and they come to us, uh, and we. Uh, try them out Um, a lot a lot of the stuff we do because there's only there's only two full-time prop makers in the in the whole company uh, and everything else is done Mm -hmm. by freelancers which is a great way of doing it because you know you you don't get stuck with a load of welders when you need to do uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) some curtains Mm -hmm. so uh, it's a good way of doing it Um, you talked about about 3d printing Um, which is
0: entirely new and Mm. and beyond the the understanding of most of us. I mean, presumably one of the key elements with all the people that you have is that they have to have an understanding of their materials, be it plastic, be it steel, uh, be it how to use a three-dimensional printer, Mm. um, in a way that other people wouldn't have. I mean, there's the need for a proper grasp of of, of materials.
2: Yeah, I I think so. I, I think you... You can transfer the skills from one section to another. You, know, you don't have to know how to make a teapot that breaks every performance and gets magnetized, put together. Um, you, you will just take skills that you've learned and then apply them together. But yeah, 3D printing is just changing everything. It's, it's incredible uh, what you can do now.
0: You can you give, p- give us an idea of what you've discovered about three-dimensional printing that, that that's, you think is going to change uh, the art of the prop
2: maker. Um, obviously, the, rather than having someone sit and sculpt something with clay or with um, modelling materials, they will create it inside a computer, which you could email the picture to the designer who will mm-hmm. approve or disapprove or make changes. And then you print it and you leave it printing for 17 hours and then you come back and it's there. Um, well it doesn't necessarily take jobs away from prop makers. It just means that they're working in a different way. You know, I think everyone was very scared uh, <laughs> of these printers to begin with, yeah. like Luddite type things. <laughs> but um, I think it's it's kind of, it's been accepted now and, and it is an amazing tool for doing things not necessarily quicker, but just better yeah. presumably
0: it's like the revolution that came to uh, art and design with computer aided design I remember watching um, those people who designed textiles suddenly being able to do repeats thanks to computers um, about f- twenty times faster than simply sitting at their at their bench so presumably it's about speed and about about about, 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 about accuracy of a different kind
2: yeah yeah I think it's it's drawing up drawing it's a tool it's just another tool in your in your toolbox that you can use mm. um, and it's been useful on this show for just nice things when do you get involved in the production <laughs> um, me personally i will get on board quite early on after a, a, the designer and the production team present us with a model of the show uh, and, and we'll get involved at that point and see the model and start costing uh, it like the model for this <laughs> hey, it was uh, my jaw hit the floor uh, when when they presented it um, which I can't say but uh. <laughs> if you don't um, like
0: this we should all burst through the door to see what <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, yeah. so we get involved in the costing of, yeah, of yeah. the show and, yeah. and we we'll say this is going to cost this much and they'll yeah. say, think again, so we have another yeah. think <laughs> and then we finally agree and then we start around two or three weeks after we should have. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and do you go, th- once you've, you've seen the model,
0: once you've talked to the designer and heard what the director and the designer are going to do, do you make a kind of list of, if you like, a kind of prop list
2: yeah, there'll be a prop list for every show, um, you know, like a couple of pages worth of stuff, you know, spoons, uh, stamps, mm. uh, chairs, mm. always chairs, uh, mm-hmm. you know, things on wheels, you know, fairy wands, working fairy wands, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, things like that. So, yeah, and then we'd go away and we'd figure out how to, how to make them. Um, based on previous experience.
0: And, and how willing are designers to compromise when you explain, A, that the budget will not allow them to make a solid gold bath, and B, <laughs> you know, that, that you can't do it anyway?
2: And how, 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 how flexible do you
0: find designers?
2: Oh, they're uh, they're all different. You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I've met some great, great people, and... Um, in fact, the designer of, of this show, Paul Brown, sadly passed away um, before he got to see the show, which is very sad. Uh, he was a great man. He was really... He trusted you, he would give you something, and, and he would let you do it to the best of your ability. And I think that was what really m- made him stand out as a, as a great designer, is the trust that he gave in the people that are paid to do their jobs.
0: I've often wondered where the frontier between those of you in props um, uh, uh, and the others involved in getting a production on stage exists. I mean, for example, there's a standard lamp or there's a desk lamp. Is that props or is that lighting?
2: It it will vary from theatre to theatre, but things like... Uh, and and it, it, it's slightly be- beyond reason sometimes, because umbrellas are props, parasols are costume. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> who, who figured that out? So, I think it just all depends, really, on on who's willing to do it. <laughs> uh, what's the prop that you reckon you've made the most often for shows here? Uh, we do chairs. Uh, we're always strengthening chairs. Um... I don't know why opera needs so many chairs. Uh, I mean, we all like a nice sit down, don't we? Uh, um, but yeah, it's mainly chairs and blood effect knives. You know, the the knife with the hidden chamber full of blood for for the killings. Not much in our lengthy, though. No. It? Yeah. And and where where do you source safe chairs? Um, all sorts of places, there'll be antiques fairs, mm. markets, people donate stuff occasionally mm. um, and often they're, they're, they're in quite a state when we get them and we have to reinforce them. And, now that's, so. that's
0: the, the most regular. What is the most extraordinary thing that you've ever been faced
2: with? Yeah, well I can't, the, 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 do you mean the best thing I've ever made? Well I can't really say uh, <laughs> because it is, you're going to see it later. It is absolutely the best thing that I've ever been involved in. Uh, uh, it's, it's fantastic. What a tease you. Are. I'm going to tease. All right. I'll, I'll give you... It, give a, us a hint. There's a lot of wood in there. There's a lot of steel. There's 3D printing. Uh, there's, there's metal work and lathing and paint effects. And there's a bit of a Henry Hoover. Uh, there's, the, there's the top of a Dalek. It's, uh, it's, it's all in there.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> about
3: half one. Mm. Yeah. But just just
0: briefly, uh,
2: the thing, something you could tell us about that that was re- was a real challenge to make. Um, oh, a few a few years ago, we we made a, for a production. We made a, a Mustang airplane, uh, which <laughs> which um, had to be sat on its side and pushed in on stage, and then there was no way of getting it on stage because it was too big. So the wings had to fold down. Uh, and about two weeks in, they said, oh, oh, and it's covered in pink glitter as well. <laughs> so we were glittering this aeroplane. Uh, and you still find glitter now in the Coliseum <laughs> from then. Little pink bits of glitter in all the traps and the floors.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll find if we leave fairly speedily so they can arrange the bar here, that the bar downstairs in the circle is open. Uh, thank you for all coming. Can I remind you that before every performance, one of every show that the Coliseum uh, stages, we have these pre-performance talks. If you've not been before, do come and join us again. Uh, we like seeing you here. In the meantime, on your behalf, can I thank our guests this afternoon for being with us. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>